Hey everyone, you are watching The Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan. We're here every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern live. Uh, sorry for the slight delay in getting today's show started. Uh, as I'm sure you guys have seen from the description, we're hoping to have Jacobin contributor Natalie Shure come on to talk about her new article in the print edition of Jacobin, which is called, uh, I, I believe it's called The End of the Honeymoon with AOC. The End of the AOC Honeymoon. It's a great article out in the new issue. Um, we were having some technical difficulties, so we're going to continue working on trying to get her with us. If not, we'll record the interview later and air it for you guys. Uh, but we have another great guest today, which is Rama Vasudevan. She's an economist, and she'll be coming on a little bit later to talk to us about inflation. Um, I really wanted to have her on to kind of give the left perspective on um uh, not just inflation, but the causes and consequences and how we should really be thinking about it and whether there is anything that the federal government and the Federal Reserve can do or should do that they they may or may not do. Uh, so definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, and for my own part, I wanted to make some brief comments just about the recent San Francisco school board election or the, the recall election that happened uh, last week. Um, I don't know if any of you guys were following that, but these three progressive or so-called progressive school board members in San Francisco were recalled. Uh, it looks like a lot of that uh, energy or a lot of the voter turnout was sort of fueled by Asian Americans. Um, so I think I'm going to dive straight into those comments while we uh, wait to see if we can get Natalie back with us. And um, then maybe we'll jump over to that interview because I was really excited to talk to her about that. So progressives on the coasts continue to ignore or dismiss Asian American voters at their own peril. As I've discussed before, a significant number of Asian voters in New York swung to the right last November after the city's Democratic leadership made it clear that they were just not interested in talking to them. It now looks like Asian voters have also flexed their electoral power on the West Coast, just last week, three self-identified progressive school board members in the famously liberal city of San Francisco were recalled by an overwhelming majority of voters in a special election. Take a look. Let's give you a live look at San Francisco, where it appears the high-profile effort to recall three school board members was successful. New results coming in within the last 15 minutes or so. So far, 75% voted to recall school board president Gabriela Lopez. For Commissioner Allison Collins, 78% are voting yes to recall her. And for Commissioner Bauga Maliga, 72%. KPIX 5's Katie Nielsen on what both sides say is at stake. In San Francisco's first recall election since 1983, about 25% of eligible voters cast their ballots in early voting, a low turnout for an election that could drastically change the city's school board. Every vote counts, and I myself am a San Francisco native. I've seen the city change so much, so I definitely want my voice to be heard. The question voters had to answer was whether to recall three school board members of the San Francisco school board after proponents say the board failed students during the pandemic by focusing on the idea of renaming schools instead of planning to bring students back to class, then changing the admissions policy at Lowell High School from merit-based to a lottery system. 
they are so egregiously incompetent. So we need to get them out now. And we have. The voters have spoken. But opponents say this was all a power grab with funding coming from millionaires and billionaires looking to privatize public schools. So how have opponents of the recall responded to the results? Julie Roberts Fung, the chair of the campaign against the recall, who spoke in the video we just watched, told CNN, you know, it's a power grab to have that kind of special election that curates a smaller electorate. It allows for a small, more affluent, whiter curated set of voters to make decisions that are going to impact our public schools. After the election, one of the recalled school board members doubled down on this racial narrative, tweeting, quote, don't be mistaken, white supremacists are enjoying this, and the support of the recall is aligned with this. So it's true that several Silicon Valley billionaires donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to the recall effort. But as the San Francisco Chronicle recently reported, more people voted to recall these three school board members than elected them in 2018. It's also questionable if these voters were more affluent or more white than than the San Francisco population at large. In fact, it seems pretty clear that increased turnout from Asian voters helped fuel the recall. As local San Francisco broadcast station KQED observed, election results, uh, sorry, election returns show stronger support for the recall in majority Asian neighborhoods such as Chinatown, Visitation Valley, the Sunset and Portola as compared to citywide totals. And the New York Times wrote, for many Asian Americans in the city, especially the large Chinese American community, the results were an affirmation of the group's voting power, coming with a high degree of organizing turnout and intensity not seen in many years. In an election where every registered voter received a ballot, overall turnout was relatively low at 26%, but turnout among the 30,000 people who requested Chinese language ballots was significantly higher at 37%. So what was the secret to turning out these Asian voters? If you ask conservatives, the entire recall was a repudiation of wokeness. Here's Fox News on the election. I am so shocked by this. This is happening in San Francisco. I think it's a great thing. But they're even too woke for San Francisco. And it makes perfect sense. When you damage, when you hurt children, even in the most progressive city, San Francisco, the, the parents have had enough Ainsley. The kids have been damaged. Education is fundamental. It's a constitutional right. Public education is fundamental. And these school board members place wokeism, renaming schools, changing the name of schools and keeping these children home. Ainsley, the damage has been done. They lost quality time in school because of these politicians who wanted to play politics at the expense of these school children. We're seeing this all over the country. Parents are really coming out of the woodwork. They're learning who's on their school boards. They're speaking out against CRT and renaming all of these schools. Uh, Why do you think this is happening in our country right now? I've never seen anything like this. Because parents really realized one of the collateral benefits of the pandemic, if you could call it this, mm-hmm. parents get have learned now about what's going on in their schools. And that's affecting their children. In this San Francisco school district, Ainsley, they were trying to make it a war against black students and Asian students. 
one of the school board members said that Asians have the mindset of white supremacists. I am sick and tired of this race card dividing kids. And this and the Asian community has been attacked throughout this entire country with hate crime. And now they're playing politics and hatred with kids at the school. It is out of control, Ainsley. So I think there may be a kernel of truth to this interpretation. For instance, it's probably a bad idea for a school board to throw their energy into renaming Abraham Lincoln High when parents kind of just want to figure out how to safely reopen Abraham Lincoln High. Likewise, referring to Asians as house slaves who are enthralled to white supremacy, as former school board member Allison Collins did, seems like a pretty surefire way to lose their support. Finally, as I've argued in the past, it's political poison when policymakers and school boards launch schemes to diversify a tiny handful of high-performing schools by changing the admissions policies to lower the number of Asian students admitted to those schools. These kinds of policies do not treat education like a public good, but instead treat education like a scarce resource that should be divided up equally by race rather than expanded and improved for all. This is just austerity with a woke twist, and almost every liberal city that has tried this has suffered a backlash from voters. That said, in all honesty, we'll probably never be able to say for sure what exactly or exactly what percentage of the recall was fueled by opposition to wokeness, what percentage was due to the board changing admissions policies, and what percentage was the product of school closures. Instead, I think it's also useful here to consider how Asian voters were mobilized. Controversial issues can, of course, energize or outrage people, but is that enough to drive them to the polls? In San Francisco, the majority, the supporters of the recall, heavily invested time and energy into channeling outrage into what appeared to be a very traditional ground game. To look at just one example, Ann Sue, one particularly dedicated supporter of the recall, quote, focused tightly on Chinese language newspapers, YouTube channels, and advertising. She and her volunteer distributed thousands of yellow shopping bags emblazoned with recall messages and gave them out to older Chinese residents. She set up a task force that registered 560 residents, almost all of them Asian Americans, to vote. So high Asian turnout is a pretty big deal because in the U.S., Asian political participation has historically been low compared to other groups. This is further exacerbated by a very unfortunate feedback loop where politicians don't bother trying to campaign to Asians because they assume Asians don't vote and Asians continue not to vote because no politicians are bothering to talk to them. Here's how political scientist Karthik Ramakrishnan explained it. What we've seen is that Asian Americans have not been as engaged in voting as African Americans and non-Hispanic whites. So that's a persistent puzzle. Part of that is because of the fact that Asian Americans are heavily immigrant and are still trying to get educated and informed about American politics. But it's also because parties are not doing the outreach to Asian Americans. Uh, they're much more likely to reach out to white voters uh, and to African American voters than they are to Asian American voters. So that's, that's hurt uh, Asian American participation in the past. We do see uh, elements of change. So this is a constituency that's very much up for grabs. And you would think that with a group like this, you would see both parties doing their best to try to reach out to uh, Asian American communities. What we find is that there is tremendous diversity, but in fact, when it comes to where Asian Americans stand on the issues, there's actually a remarkable degree of consistency. Asian Americans are more likely to favor bigger government providing more services than smaller government providing fewer services. 
they're also all on the same page when it comes to issues like gun control and environmental protection. When it comes to healthcare, again, consistent opinion. And so Asian Americans are no longer just the margin of victory, they're a significant part of the electorate and need to be paid attention to. So that's one important call to action is that campaigns and, and parties and campaigns need to do outreach to Asian Americans. They need to hire Asian American staff, they need to translate their materials, and they need to make sure that they're addressing the kinds of issues that Asian Americans care about. Okay, so what if someone actually tried this? Of course, we now have the San Francisco School Board recall as one recent example of successful voter mobilization. But to put this all into wider perspective, let's look at a much larger California election from just a few years ago, where Asian voters also played a decisive role. In the 2020 Democratic primaries, Bernie Sanders notched a huge victory in California, winning 50 out of 58 counties in a state that has more Asian residents than any other in the U.S., What the Sanders campaign seemed to understand is that the lack of outreach to Asian voters by most politicians was potentially an opportunity and not necessarily a liability. As Bernie Sanders California director Jane Kim put it during the race, quote, we know this is a gettable community. The Sanders campaign launched a number of early efforts to engage Asian voters, including printing campaign materials in six different Asian languages and organizing volunteers fluent in those languages to canvas low turnout districts. According to Jane Kim, the California campaign prioritized neighborhoods that were not used to seeing door knockers, including areas with high percentages of Latino and Asian American residents, and the effort paid off. As we now know from exit polls, Bernie won a plurality of Asian voters in California, which is to say that he won more Asian votes than any other presidential candidate in the state. According to CNN's 2020 exit poll, for instance, he won 31% of Asians compared to 20% that voted for Biden. Exit polls from NBC and the New York Times show similar results. Now, if you've watched the show in the past, you probably know that I reject the idea of a monolithic, quote, AAPI community or even a monolithic Asian vote. The point of talking about Asian voters here is not that there are some kind of magic Asian words that politicians can say to activate or turn out Asian voters. In fact, I would argue that the most interesting thing about Asian voters is less that they're Asian and more that they're voters that the overwhelming majority of the political establishment continues to write off year after year. On the rare occasion that a politician actually bothers to campaign to them, these are the voters that can often spell the margin of victory for an election. However, as we've seen in New York and now San Francisco, that is not always to the benefit of so-called progressive city leaders. The recently ousted school board members in San Francisco can cry white supremacy all they want, but Democrats and progressives who care about winning elections and governing effectively should take note of last week's recall and what it says about the untapped potential of the voters that they never bother to talk to. All right. Well, I'm sure I will have additional comments on that, as, of course, we have more elections coming up uh, later this year. Uh, But I think that we have our first guest, Natalie Shure, with us now. So I want to go ahead and bring her out. She is a contributor to Jacobin and a columnist at The New Republic. And she's just written a great article for the latest print edition of Jacobin called The End of the AOC Honeymoon. Natalie, it's good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. 
Of course. Um, so let's let's just dive straight into your article. Um, like I said, I thought it was great. Uh, in the article, you you look at how segments of the left have really become pretty critical of AOC over the last couple of years, right? Uh, and in your piece, you 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 explain that there's been sort of a series of mini controversies, I guess I'll call them, uh, starting with the you know force the vote controversy. Uh, you talk about AOC and Jamal Bowman's uh, votes on funding Israel's uh, Iron Dome, which of course generated quite a lot of backlash. Um, and you did not get into the Met Gala tax the rich dress fiasco. But I personally would add that to, again, just a string of sort of flashpoints that have outraged a lot of people on the left. Um, so without, you know, making you relitigate every single one of these mini controversies, I'm, I'm curious, what do you think these fights tell us about AOC's relationship to the left, and then more broadly, the left's relationship to power? Sure. Uh, well, I think more than anything, uh, these incidents perhaps reveal uh, a, re a real tension about what it means for leftists to govern uh, and how leftists are able to use their power through uh, their considerable number of elected officials, uh, all things considered, after just a couple of years. Uh, so the, the incidents I really focused on were uh, Force the Vote and the uh, fracas over Jamal Bowman's um, whether or not he should be expelled from DSA because of his uh, vote for Iron Dome. Um, and I think that what both of these situations illustrated was the fact that there is uh, at times a tension between being, you know, basically a tribune for the left and, you know, fighting at all times for uh, a leftist agenda and, um, you know, governing in a remotely conventional way uh, and, you know, using the levers of power as they are meant to be used. And I think that both of those situations really, um, you know, brought to the, the foreground attention within the broader left about what those electeds are for. Yeah, so I want to follow up on that uh, because part of your article also looks at how, you um, uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword for AOC that she she's sort of been catapulted to mega stardom, right? She is a like household name at this point, uh, very polarizing, attracts obviously a lot of ire from you know Fox News commentators and other figures on the right, but at the same time is also like beloved and you know like broadly broadly sort of held up by not just not just leftists and progressives but i think even some liberals at this point and to that point i want to share uh the cover of a new book that i saw is just out from new york magazine it's called take up space the unprecedented aoc i think i think the book just came out this week um i happened to glimpse it i of course haven't read the book but just from skimming through the description uh it looks like a pretty hagiographic account of kind of her rise to stardom so uh you know given this kind of push and pull or, or just given this, you know, extremely high profile, um, how, how do you think this mega stardom works for and against AOC right now? Okay, well, you know, the uh, analogy I used in the piece came from one of my sources, which is riding the tiger. Um, you know, I think one one big part of this story, uh, the, the story was more about the squad and the new elected officials, but I think the story is very obviously also about Bernie insofar as mm. sometimes on the left, back up and remember that the biggest single reason that we have gotten to the point that we have at this point when we did it is because Bernie Sanders decided to run for the presidency on a lark in 2016. So since that happened, we right. have 
affected several people. And that's a big deal. That's important. More people understand what socialism is than ever before. DSA has cleared 100,000 members, etc. Um, and, you know, AOC is a fairly significant part of that. Uh, I think the other squad members um, are also a significant part, but no one is quite at that same level that AOC is. And so, right. you know, she is able to be a mouthpiece. She is able to be, you know, more palatable to liberals than I think some left mm-hmm. messaging has been. And I think that's ultimately a good thing. We do want people to be exposed to these arguments. We want people to, you know, be reached where they are. Uh, and so I think that those things are very, very good. Uh, AOC and the rest of the squad have given DSA so much visibility and they've really helped drive our membership and bring more people into the org who become organizers who get involved in other campaigns. Uh, I think the downside is that um, you know, they, they, they have these broad platforms. They have these very broad constituencies. Um, they are trying to, uh, to make political inroads within, you know, the, the con- whatever context uh, they are operating in. Um, you know, in some cases, they are uh, trying not to butt heads with the leadership, trying to figure out how to navigate the halls of power even if they're doing that in very good faith from a leftist perspective, I think that it can be it can be hard to be a confrontational mm-hmm. outsider when you're on the inside. Um, and I think it can be hard to learn how to be a movement politician in general. And I think that all of those tensions are are obvious within a few different people. Yeah, I, I, I want to follow up on that because something else that you point out in your piece is sort of near the end, you you note that the problem isn't really that AOC is insufficiently accountable to the left, or maybe that's kind of part of the problem. But a larger problem is that in the U.S., there really is no left to speak of, or it's ve- it's in a very weakened state, right? So I, I suppose the question for you is, do you feel like then these controversies over, you know, what AOC or what certain squad members did or did not do, um, do you see these as distractions? Or do you think that there is still some value in continuing to make noise about uh, these issues? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call them distractions because I think that, you know, especially in the Jamal Bowman case, I think that mm-hmm. the controversy was over something very serious. Uh, mm-hmm. He did place, I think, a pretty unconscionable vote. Um, I, I have no no defensive words to say about that vote uh, right. that, you know, he, he certainly deserved criticism for that. Uh, I do think that sometimes the ire over uh, these particular issues, and certainly I think the desire to cast these people off and say that they're complete sellouts because these things happen, that was more of a force the vote thing. I do think that that's based on a faulty analysis of power. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, ultimately, the left is pretty weak. We are uh, in a very early phase of what I hope is a very generalized resurgence of power, uh, knock on wood. But yeah, I mean, like I said, I think that we have to think of 2016 as year zero in some way. And, you know, looking around at year six, we certainly have some wins and that's good. That's heartening. But I don't think that we can delude ourselves uh, into believing that the left is more powerful than it is. And yeah, right now we only have a few electeds and we only represent a relatively small swath of their base. Uh, so having having a stronger left, having more elected officials, that changes the calculus in terms 
terms of, you know, the the political leverage that we are able to exercise, uh, the way that, you know, they are able to exercise leverage with their fellow electeds. I don't think that that means making excuses for people or never criticizing them. But I do think that it's going to be a fool's errand to focus on making sure that individual elected officials with relatively low amounts of power within Congress are acting in perfect lockstep with every single thing that we've voted on at convention at any given moment. I I don't think that that's a way to get stronger. I think that that's a way to, you know, have more disciplined messaging within a very, very small group of people. Um, But that's not going to be what actually tips the balance of class power in the United States. So on that note, um, I want to end with a quote that I really liked uh, from your article. So you write, the optimism that the squad could be an alternative path forward to Bernie-style universalism was based on an assumption that so far has not turned out to be true. Um, And actually, in your earlier comments, you were sort of alluding to this. And I bring this up uh, because just anecdotally, when AOC was elected, um, I was working at like a New York uh, liberal think tank. And I worked with a lot of people who just hated Bernie, like could not stand him. Like they were of that wing of the Democratic Party where they're like, I just like cannot stand Bernie Sanders and I don't want to hear anything that he has to say. Weirdly, all of these people loved AOC. And that like kind of blew my mind for a little bit. Like I was like, I I don't really understand. Like this person campaigned for Bernie. She has endorsed him. What how can you like AOC but not Bernie? Um, But, you know, as, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, the Venn diagram of people who like AOC and the Venn diagram of people who like Bernie is there's obviously substantial overlap, but it's not a perfect circle. And there there is kind of like a sliver of people who, as you were saying, maybe were brought into um, sort of more left leaning politics because of AOC. Uh, but but I, I, I really liked this line from your article because, I mean, I agree. Like, I, I, I guess I'm still unsure, like, what dividends that has really yielded. Um, so can you talk a little bit about just that line and, and, and kind of how you chose to wrap up that article? Yeah, you know, I think that what you're saying about the liberal think tank uh, was exactly what I was thinking, that yeah. around 2016 through 2018, uh, it was considered pretty conventional wisdom that one of the reasons that Bernie didn't win is because he wasn't good enough on uh, identity politics. He wasn't good enough on social issues uh, and he couldn't reach the most significant parts of the Democratic base. I think that 2020 proved that, you know, of course he could. Uh, But more importantly, I think that, you know, I've come to believe over the years we have had some great successes See Rashida Tlaib, et cetera, uh, have certainly been able to run very powerful campaigns in liberal areas. Um, but what no one so far has been able to demonstrate is that crossover appeal in purple or even red districts that Bernie Sanders had. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, the presidential election didn't play out in exactly the same way in 2020 as it did in 2016. But to this day, he still has a different profile of favorability uh, than the rest yeah. of the squad does. The rest of the squad's favorability ratings look very much like a typical Democrats favorability ratings. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that they're typical Democrats, because I don't think they are. I don't think that that's fair. But 
Bernie is able to capture uh, audiences and, you know, gain supporters that the rest of the squad hadn't. And that's what we have to figure out how to tap into, how to run leftists in areas that aren't already occupied by Democrats. Uh, Until Mm -hmm. we can do that, I think that the left will be subject to the same demographic collapse of education polarization in the cities that it seems like the Democrats are headed to now. All right. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I want to shout out your article again. It's in the latest print issue of Jacobin, and it's called The End of the AOC Honeymoon. I believe it's also up on the web as well. Uh, Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So we are going to now get to our next guest, Rama Vasudevan. Uh, But before we do, just a quick uh, ad read from our wonderful sponsors, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in February, you'll get these books The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution by Nils Melsner, an exploration of the chilling precedent set by the illegal silencing of Julian Assange. How to Be a Revolutionary by South African writer C.A. Davids, an ambitious, globe-spanning novel about what we owe our consciences. The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives by Adolf Reed Jr., a narrative account of Jim Crow as people experienced it. And Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life by Karen and Barbara Fields, a new edition of this celebrated contemporary work on race and racism. Become a member today at versobooks.com. All right. So like I said, we're going to go straight to the next guest. Uh, I would like to introduce Rama Vasudevan. She is a member of the Catalyst Editorial Board and a professor of economics at Colorado State University. She's also the author of the book Things Fall Apart from the Crash of 2008 to the Great Slump. Rama, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to bring you on, as you know, to talk about inflation. And specifically, I wanted to look at the problem of inflation from a left perspective. Um, We've obviously been hearing a lot about inflation in the news, uh, just in the political chatter. And uh, the reason why I wanted to talk to you in particular is because I feel like the so much of the, the discourse around inflation, and especially in the mainstream media, sort of treats inflation as this mysterious, like natural process where your dollar is suddenly worth less or you know, prices just mysteriously like rise for no reason. Um, it's sort of cast as this inevitable, uh, like I said, magical phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess just to start, uh, a very basic question, what exactly is inflation and why are we seeing it now? Okay. Um, so, I mean, uh, inflation is, of course, the phenomena of an acceleration of prices or price rises. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, economists understand it as an excess of spending relative to output. Okay, now this could be understood either as too much demand, which is sometimes called demand pull inflation, or constraints on supply, which which uh, leads to rising costs, cost push inflation. But um, and at different points of time in different uh, situations. It could be either, right? Uh, but from a left perspective, what is what is at stake is competing claims and distributional conflict. 
I mean, we need to see inflation from a class lens. Mm-hmm. The institutional structural context matters. And that's how, I mean, um, uh, it, it works out and it uh, inflation appears. Now, uh, there's a piece forthcoming in Catalyst by Matthias Vernengo, uh, which discusses this really clearly. So a little plug for that. <laughs> but let me, uh, uh, let me illustrate. Let's think of the 70s inflation. What's emphasized here is things like the oil shock, the Vietnam War, the war on poverty. But the inflationary pressures that built up this period actually came up from the, you can't understand them if you don't understand the unraveling of the capital labor accord Mm. post-war, which basically wages were tied to productivity, workers committed to maintaining productivity, but in return, wages would rise as productivity rose, right? Mm -hmm. There was a kind of accord, a detente, if you will. But by the 70s, you had rising worker militancy and resistance to this relentless uh, ratcheting up of productivity. And there was a capitalist backlash against the squeeze of profits. Mm-hmm. And this manifested in the inflation of that period. And this inflation was brought under control uh, basically by policies which exacerbated unemployment, undermined unions, Mm-hmm. and workers' bargaining power. The Volcker's interest rate hike, uh, deregulation and liberalization policies under Reagan, they were basically instruments to this end. And so you then had the Great Moderation, which was an outcome of a successful rebalancing of class forces in favor of corporate capital. Outsourcing, offshoring, kept real wages stagnant. And, um, and I mean, if... It, before the 70s, wages and productivity kind of were in line. They moved together. Uh, in this period, basically, productivity outpaced wage growth. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, anti-inflation policy is about redistributing incomes uh, towards capital and squeezing wage share. And you see this in policy debates too. There's a trade-off positive between unemployment and inflation. But there's a class content to this choice. And for the working class, the priority is addressing unemployment, they're, they're less inflation averse. For the capitalist class, inflation is the anathema, right? And there's a, uh, a paper by Arjun Jayadev, which actually uses survey data to bring out, substantiate these preferences of working class versus capitalists. And we need to apply the same lens to the current inflation, right? I mean, so if you want to understand what's happening today, you have to first see it in context, so one context, of course, is the successful capitalist backlash, the liberal low interest regime, which was adopted uh, after the 80s. And what you had was basically the rising dominance of finance and growing inequality, right? Inflation was held in check. You had the, what's called the great moderation, but asset prices soared. This led to the financial crisis in 2008, which is a reflection of this, I mean, the instability generated by this. But the the tragedy and the paradox is basically that after the crisis, those trends have continued unabated. They've in fact Mm -hmm. exacerbated. So when the pandemic struck, it struck at an accumulation accumulation regime, which had been set in place since the 80s. But this regime was already teetering. Okay, so and in terms of what I said about demand, um, I mean, basically Mm -hmm. um, excess demand and constraint supply, the out, I mean, the pandemic affected both demand and supply, right? Production supply was disrupted because of the lockdowns there was, and the safety concerns. Millions were left jobless and bereft of incomes, which meant they couldn't spend. The rich also cut back. I mean, the income didn't was unaffected, but they cut back on 
luxury and essential high-end services, right? Restaurants, spas, etc., and accumulated savings. So, uh, so you have the situation, and in which finally some relief measures were adopted. It shored up demand, but the disruptions of the pandemic remain. Specifically, you had disruptions to the global supply chains, and this clogged system. And the prices rose most where the supply chains were affected. It was vehicles. uh both i mean and used vehicles too energy mm-hmm. transport food right um and now the stock of uh, basically the unemployment problem has been kept in check at the stock of recovery so the prop fo- focus has shifted to inflation but we are nowhere close to capacity of full employment i mean mm-hmm. uh, uh there's a 4% unemployment rate but in terms of participation rate how many people i mean how much of, uh, of the population is actually entering the workforce we are we are lower than what we were at the start of the pandemic it's about 62% it was 63% we're even lower than what where we were in 2008 which is 66% so the economy is definitely not overheating what is what you're seeing is supply rigidities Right. Um, yeah, so I wanted to uh, I'm sorry. I wanted to follow that up by mm-hmm. saying, you know, because we're seeing this inflation, there's all this speculation now that the Fed is going to soon raise interest rates to to fight inflation. Yeah. So, can you can you talk a little bit about what this would accomplish or how would the government ideally fight inflation? Okay. So, um uh f- first, I mean, if we see what the sources of inflation were, we said I said mm-hmm. supply rigidities and um you also have uh at the same time basically the pandemic has exposed the precarity of work right and the relief measures have meant that some safety net which was provided and workers have become pushing back against a decades of squeeze right mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. so there's a the sand resurgence of working union uh working union activity and organizing activities and there's what we call the great resignation workers are basically mm-hmm. saying we are uh, enough is enough we are quitting these uh, un- unless things change we are not going to work under these conditions but the balance has not shifted right and um what the um i mean uh, what the what the what a hike of inflation uh, of the interest rate does is basically what is trying to do is squeeze wages mm-hmm. by by basically triggering a recession so you, the recession will squeeze wages it will squeeze employment and it will squeeze purchasing power so you're trying to fight the i mean inflation by squeezing purchasing power of workers mm-hmm. right and creating uh, unemployment so that basically bargaining power also gets um, uh, eroded now this cure is in sense worse than the disease right right and um it's also inappropriate in terms of uh fighting inflation if that is a concern because inflation is coming from supply constraints it's coming from a squeeze of demand i mean it's coming from uh, it's not coming from from a problem of demand so squeezing demand won't is not the solution what you need is to identify and invest in addressing these supply constraints right So I I I want to go back to uh kind of definitions around inflation because um you know I think be- I think because a lot of progressives uh and leftists are sort of fed up with the traditional kind of centrist or conservative definition of inflation you'll sometimes hear progressives talking about inflation as um 
more like a kind of CEO or corporate collusion, right? Like they're all kind of like coming together to raise prices at the same time. And I think that this is especially pronounced right now because you actually do see a lot of corporations um, recently increasing their profits and their profit margins. So I'm wondering, do you think this is an, an effective or useful corrective or does this leave something out too? Okay, so first, what is this a corrective against? Let's, let me just start with that. And so for the conservative orthodoxy, inflation is the anathema and social spending and expansion of the social safety net is unacceptable because it leads to inflation. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, people like uh, like Michael Kaleski had argued even in the 40s that capitalists are going to always oppose or impede social spending, because not because of inflation, but because it undermines capitalist control and power over the working class. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, and so the, so this thing, um, I mean, this opposition to social spending is very deep rooted and the same arguments were raised in the in the current inflation and it government spending is the villain of the peace and this was used to derail the bill black better plan right yeah. but the problem is not that the government spends too much on on public infrastructure and social welfare but the problem is it spends too little mm-hmm. the accumulation regime uh, which i talked about growing inequality financial instability its limits have been tested and what you see is a long period of erosion of productivity and productive capacity, a slowing down of the investment rate, what has been called secular stagnation. So the problem is actually, and the skewed and inadequate public spending in the last 20 decades has actually aggravated these problems. At the same time, the global supply chains that uh, undergirded the great moderation, right, have I been mean, basically outsourcing, out, 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 out um, offshoring. This was set up on the premise of flexible, cost-minimizing responses to fluctuating demand, right? And the source of this flexible uh, response was a flexible workforce and unrestricted mm-hmm. trade and capital flows. The pandemic upended that, right? Mm-hmm. And the system which was built to respond flexibly to demand shocks uh, could not respond to a shock to supply. And mm-hmm. we need public coordination and more spending in order to, to resiliently adapt to, to supply shocks, right? So first, I want to just basically put that aside. Public spending as the problem is, it's not. <laughs> right. So now, in, um, in order to, uh, and as you said, basically, um, I mean, stock prices and profit margins have definitely not been dampened by the pandemic. In fact, it kind of, uh, the for, for non-financial corporations, uh, it's grown, I mean, I think it was around 8% in Jan 2020. It's now over for around 14%. Mm-hmm. So, so they're doing really well, right? And this level yeah. was last seen in the 50s. So there is something to the idea that instead of focusing on growing government deficits or workers' demand for living wages as a source of inflationary pressure, let's turn the spotlight on profiteering corporations, right? right? Uh, but the thing is that while the forging of global assembly lines at the supply chains allowed corporations to squeeze wages, and costs and corner a larger share of income during the great moderation, even as prices were stable, the breakdown of supply chains with the pandemic is perversely providing them with an opportunity to hike prices. I mean, think of the four big uh, meat conglomerates, yeah. like big pharma. So that is definitely happening. But if we think of um, inflation as a symptom of, of a deeper melee, right? And then the growth and concentration of corporate power is without doubt... I mean, a fundamental structural problem that needs to be addressed. 
and the kind of things that have been talked about, price regulations, antitrust actions, they would be part of the arsenal to check unbridled profiteering. Now, uh, equally strengthening uh, institutions of wage bargaining and better working conditions uh, are also essential. But one shouldn't lose sight of the fact that inflation is arising from supply constraints, which are pushing up costs. Now, these need to be addressed too. And to my mind, even more important for this, that where is inflation coming from? Is it coming from uh, this cost push or from a demand pull? Uh, is the fact that the pressing problem we have today is that tendency to secular stagnation I was talking about, declining productive capacity, declining productivity growth, uh, flagging investment rates, right? And curbing corporate power is more important to, to addressing these underlying contradictions, mm -hmm. perpetuated stag secular stagnation. And I, I don't think the progressives should cede ground and allow the focus to be shifted from this and let the, cons uh, the conservative inflation hawks usurp <laughs> the agenda. Inflation is not the problem, the, I mean, the most pressing problem for the working class today. Secular mm -hmm. stagnation, it's employment. And if we, we need to preserve that. And curbing, uh, curbing corporate power is, is important, yeah. it's important for that reason not as an inflation fighting tool. So I, I, I want to go back to something that you said uh, uh, just a few minutes ago about how the problem is not uh, too much uh, social spending or public public spending. It's too little. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that's interesting because you have obviously written about um, kind of, I guess, the rise of the Fed or the rise of the Fed in, uh, yes, there we go. There's your catalyst article, uh, COVID-19 and dollar hegemony. Um, I, I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how the government has sort of retreated from fiscal policy, which has created kind of this opening for the Fed to take a larger role, um, especially since 2008, but obviously through the pandemic as well. Yeah. Yeah. And again, here we go back to the to the period of 80s and, and the restructuring would happen at that point. So um, uh, at that point, central bank independence, financial deregulation and um uh, kind of uh, liberalization was, was was the push, right? It was the pushback mm -hmm. against, uh, I, I mean, uh, the the profit squeeze and the inflation in the seventies. In that regime, fiscal policy is kind of um, basically seen as, I mean, inflation is 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 the enemy, and any uh, increase in social spending, especially if it's uh, uh, I mean, government spending, not so much, but social spending more so, mm -hmm. right? The military mm -hmm. spending, I mean, all, I mean, the, the deficit right. was increased during Republican regimes and largely for military and related purposes with tax cuts to corporations, etc., exacerbating the deficit. And that, I mean, so um, uh, the attacks on the social safety net, the attacks on, uh, on public spending basically meant the state is ceding ground of that and moving to basically a, um, uh, a policy which uses monetary policy more than fiscal policy to pump the economy. So if there's, I mean, this is the origin of the famous Greenspan uh, path, that is uh, every, dot com bust, lower interest rates. Mm -hmm. And and so you had this low interest regime, which basically fueled the rise of fi finance. 
And so central bank independence means independence from, let's say, democratic control of of the, I mean, through legislatures or whatever. But basically, it means that the that the um, uh, the central banks and finance are more closely aligned, mm-hmm. right? You see the revolving door between central banks, the treasury, and the big banks, and that is, in a sense, what we've seen. And and I mean, even uh, even during great financial crisis, it was easier to do for the Fed to bail out than for the Congress to to pass stimulus packages. And it was it was the recognition that the stimulus in 2008 was was very inadequate, which finally forced, I mean, some kind of stimulus or spending in uh, in response to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But you see a big contrast between the way the Fed could push through its agenda and the way the stimulus Fed fiscal policy can be adopted. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the point which I said about, uh, I mean, quoting Kaleski, that for capitalists, fisc- I mean, anything which expands the social safety net or uh, social infrastructure it undermines capitalist control. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to, fu- to basically discipline the workforce to, uh, I mean, the threat of uh, retrenchment. It, it blunts the force of that threat. So it's, it's it's unacceptable. So 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 with this regime shift, you had this push to not fiscal policy, or, or, and if it is, it's basically what's called asset Keynesianism, things which boost assets rather than hmm. build. Uh, I mean, social safety or social infrastructure, and so that the Fed becomes comes at the forefront, the one institution which can act. Sorry. <laughs> No, I, I, so I think I want to just kind of wrap all of that up with a question about um, financialization, uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, we obviously we, we've gone through like a massive public health crisis in the pandemic um, during this time, right as the economy uh, craters billionaires, we now know, made a combined five trillion dollars mostly thanks to the wild fluctuations of the stock market. So um, this might be a kind of like basic question, but why why are the fortunes of the stock market so totally disconnected from the larger economy? Yeah, it's crazy to contemplate. I know. (laughs) I mean, look at the suffering of the last two years. And uh, it's, it's the best year for the stock markets. It's the best year for the billionaires. They're... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, so part of the story, of course, is this accumulation uh, regime of the neo- neoliberal era, right? Mm-hmm. So the two elements which are key are the dominance of finance and uh, basically uh, the importance of the financial markets as a way of making profits. And the other is the growing polarization, the squeeze on on labor, right? Um, um, so while finance is not independent, completely independent of the real economy, it, it is there is it, it has to be linked, and the link is periodically asserted in financial crisis. Financial accumulation does have some degree of autonomy, right? Finance fl- thrives on self-fulfilling uh, prophecies. I mean, if you think of asset prices going to rise and people start buying, it does rise, right? Uh, you also have the phenomena of uh, corporate uh, stock buybacks where, where corporations are able to 
pump up their stocks by buying them back. And that also means that the executive pay, which is based on uh, uh, basically stock options, rises. And they get a bonus because stocks have, I mean, stock prices are doing. So you have that regime. Mm-hmm. But while these are, I mean, but uh, since ultimately, the, I mean, uh, this period of autonomy can get, gets a root shock and you have the souring of expectations, um, uh, the sentiment turns, you have a crash. Now, given the scale and reach of finance, uh, um, basically, every time there's a crash, uh, you have to have bailouts. And we saw that even in, 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 the, in the pandemic, right? So the most, I mean, while uh, the stimulus package or even the Fed's program to boost employment, the Paycheck Protection Program, it had a bumpy start that was ridden with controversy. The Fed's policy to shore up the financial machinery, which had crashed, I mean, price, stock prices, treasury prices all came down in March 2020. Now, that policy was not marked by any of the hesitancy and the lack of purposeness that had characterized the state's response to the public health disaster and the other aspects of the disaster coming from the pandemic. So all stops were pulled out to bail out finance and arrest this crash. The tools that had been kind of deployed during the financial crisis were pulled out, but the Fed went even further. It ex- it kind of exp- extended the safety net to corporate bonds, to asset managers. And so even when job numbers continue to be dismal uh, and the, the death toll was mounting, the stock market had its best streak. Mm-hmm. The finance gets even more powerful and more emboldened because every time there's a, a crash, the scale and reach of finance necessitates the bailout, right? Mm-hmm. So the gains and upsides are, is cornered by few. The state takes a burden of the risk, in effect socializing it, and finance continues to prosper despite the travails of the working people and the fact that the economy is flagging. And we're seeing that now. And this dominance of finance is also uh, reflected in how organization uh, the uh, the organization of production. So yeah, the decri- I mean, the, the same trends I was talking about, declining trends of investment, uh, the ruthless restructuring and retrenchment, which, if, which is imposed on companies every time there's a merger or an acquisition. All this f- feeds on and fuels polarization, the mm-hmm. concentration of income and wealth, and the declining share of workers. And, and so the fortunes of the stock market kind of have a life of their own and have a kind of, uh, in a sense, um, a, a, a stark kind of contrast to what to the, to the real economy and the lives of working people. I, I think something that uh, sometimes is hard to kind of like wrap my brain around when we're talking mm-hmm. about these sort of larger economic trends or these structural constraints or these structural problems is, um, is there anything that the left can do? I mean, you know, putting aside the question of even like whether the left in the US is, it has enough power to do anything, like mm-hmm. even putting that aside, how should, how can we think about these larger economic problems on, you know, an, an organizing level, I suppose, because, you know, uh, while I take your point about, you know, the kind of factors that are undergirding inflation, um, I think the question is, like, can we do anything about it? Okay, I think part of the message is that, um, that the focus should be on things like, uh, uh, 
worker organizing, mm-hmm. worker unionization, things which allow workers to protect wages and improve their working conditions. Yes. Right. So, uh, so that's one plank. And I think the, the I mean, uh, equally the plank of, you know, continually pushing back against corporate monopolies and what they're doing mm-hmm. is important. But, but the point I'm trying, I would like to make is that it's important, not so much because we ought to fight inflation. It's important because we want a better world, right? Right. <laughs> a, a more equitable world. Right. And, um, I mean, while inflation reflects conflicting claims and a distributive conflicts, right? So what, what you have to go back, go to the heart of is those conflicts, mm-hmm. which, 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 uh, which are, which are kind of appearing uh, at the form of inflation. And as I said, the real danger is stagnation mm-hmm. and recessionary trends yeah. that will um, exacerbate unemployment. That will exacerbate, uh, I, I mean, again, I mean, there's been some uptick in wages, that's going to be, I mean, there'll be a clamp down on that immediately. Uh, whatever safety net uh, kind of attempts to push the safety at the social safety net have happened will be again uh, eroded. So we have to protect the safe social safety net. We have to um, protect uh, the capacity of workers to organize. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to push back against, uh, continually push back against corporate monopolies. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, the illusory, whatever, I mean, this, this whole thing about finance is again, really, <laughs> one has to understand how, I mean, uh, uh, how that, I mean, there's always a new bubble. So, so the whole crypto mm-hmm. thing, the NF, the non-fungible token thing, there's always mm-hmm. a new bubble, which offers you quick, that, I mean, and now this, I mean, there's also this um, illusion of democratizing finance, right? Right, right. Anyone can, you know. Get, and that is really dangerous. So, right. so I think it's important to also talk about that. Finally, right, right. Like everyone. So, all right. Uh, so again, Rama Vasudevan is a member of the Catalyst editorial board and the author of Things Fall Apart from the Crash of 2008 to the Great Slump. Rama, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and uh, it was good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Uh, so I'm glad that we got to talk to Rama. I'm glad that we got Natalie Shore on after a few technical glitches to talk about her great article. Uh, I encourage all of you to check out um, both of their works in Catalyst and in Jacobin and elsewhere. And on that note, uh, we will see you next week. 